After the attack on Pearl Harbour in 1941, which led to the United States formally entering World War II, the first place in Europe that American soldiers set foot was in Belfast. Seven weeks after Pearl Harbour, around 6,000 troops arrived. A second and much larger influx began in October 1943, peaking at 100,000 American GIs. Joining me this evening to talk about this uh, overlooked aspect of World War II history is Dr Simon Topping, Associate Professor of United States History at Plymouth University. He's the author of the new book, Northern Ireland, the United States and the Second World War, published by Blue. Bloomsbury, Simon, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thanks for having me on. Tell us uh, a little bit, first of all, about this little-known topic in terms of the history of the Second World War and your own discovery of the story. Where did you first become interested in it? Well, I think uh, becoming interested in it is slightly different from learning about it. It's one of those uh, stories of Northern Ireland's history which is, it's always kind of bubbled under the surface so I was dimly aware of it and as a child there was a photograph of my father as a young man with an American GI uh, which sadly is now lost and even when I started looking at this topic that photograph didn't uh, come back to me until many years later. Now the genesis of this was actually looking at the New York Times index um, during the war for my PhD research and I thought I'd see if there were any references to Northern Ireland or Belfast. And I found a 50-word article in May 1944 about an American soldier who was executed for a murder he committed in Belfast. And that kind of piqued my interest. You know, that sense that I, I kind of knew about this, but didn't have any details. And then it turned out that the soldier was an African-American. And my background is as a civil rights specialist. So that interested me even further. And did you explore that aspect of the story or did you then move on to the to the wider aspect? It started off looking at the uh, the experience of African-American servicemen uh, in Northern Ireland during the war. So there had been some stuff done on the UK more generally, but this really intrigued me. Uh, this was Northern Ireland, indeed Ireland's first uh, interaction with a large group of, of people of colour. So I wanted to see what the responses were of the people of Northern Ireland to African-American soldiers, vice versa, whether welcomes or hostility crossed um, sectarian lines, and what the soldiers themselves thought about their experiences in Northern Ireland during the war. Okay, we'll come back to that particular topic, but who made the decision to use Northern Ireland as a base for American troops? Were there discussions between the, uh, the American government, British government and the Northern Ireland governments? Well, the uh, the Stormont was uh, not included in these discussions. So what we have is in early 1941, the Americans, the British and indeed the Canadians talking about a hypothetical uh, stationing of US troops uh, somewhere in the United Kingdom. And this kind of accelerates after Lend-Lease, which is passed in the States in the spring of 1941. And by the summer of 1941, the Americans, under the guise of land lease and employed by the UK government, are building installations, particularly in Derry, uh, the Lisa Halley naval base in Derry. So this is done without without the consultation with the Northern Ireland government, but with its acquiescence. Um, now, the troops themselves, 
There are discussions uh, between Roosevelt and Churchill in the autumn of 1941. So this is before Pearl Harbor. And Churchill has suggested that Roosevelt send a battalion of American troops to garrison Northern Ireland. Uh, And of course, this would have been in violation of America's neutrality. The decision itself comes just before Christmas. So shortly after Pearl Harbor, Churchill goes to Washington, meets Roosevelt. They discuss strategy for the war in Europe. And Churchill suggests that the Americans send troops to Northern Ireland in the first instance. The government of Northern Ireland is only formally told of this uh, maybe two weeks before the Americans arrive. Uh, the Prime Minister summoned to London uh, and he's told that this is going to happen. And actually, far from being offended at not being consulted, uh, the government is delighted. It puts Northern Ireland at the centre of the war. It gives Northern Ireland a purpose. And of course, it, it emphasises Northern Ireland's difference from uh, neighbouring era. Now, I can imagine if the Northern Ireland government were not consulted, then the government of Eamon de Valera would not have been consulted either. But under the terms of the 1937 constitution, this was American troops on Irish soil. Did this cause de Valera difficulties? Did it impact on Ireland's neutrality? Did it was it was awkward for De Valera in that it it demonstrated the reality that the constitution extended only to the twenty six uh, counties rather than to Northern Ireland as well, and the British and the Americans knew that they had to inform De Valera at some stage. So the decision was taken to let him know either once the convoy was out of danger of U boats or that the convoy was known about by the Germans. So it's only really when the landing is imminent that the British representative in Dublin uh, informs De Valera. Now, De Valera issues a protest. He calls it a statement, but it's uh, because had it been a, a formal protest, then this could have triggered a diplomatic incident. So he issues a statement saying that he should have been consulted, that it was known that Ireland was a single state and so on and so forth. So re- rehearsing the sort of arguments that were uh, very common for De Valera when referring to partition and to Northern Ireland. Now, the US representative in Ireland during this period, during the war period, was a man called uh, David Gray, the US minister to Ireland. And he would not have been De Valera's biggest fan. He wouldn't have been Ireland's biggest fan either. Uh, the treaty ports were returned to Ireland with magnificent timing in 1938, just before the war began. Uh, Churchill tried and failed to get them back from De Valera. Did Gray think he was going to do any better? I think, yes, David Gray harboured many delusions when he was a US minister in Dublin. He thought that his job was actually to negotiate an end to partition, which was never part of his remit. And he thought that he could persuade De Valera to aid the Allies in some shape or form. So the bases are important in these calculations. But actually, once the US starts fortifying bases in Northern Ireland, the bases south of the border um, become largely irrelevant. They are there and used by Gray as a way of attacking de Valera, of exposing what he sees as, as the hypocrisies of ERA's neutrality uh, during the war. Uh, but actually, strategically, certainly in the run-up to D-Day, the Allies didn't want the bases and they thought that they were more hassle than they were worth. They thought they, were, they would have been too difficult to defend had they acquired them. 
so the focus becomes Northern Ireland. And this is another benefit of the landing of the Americans for Northern Ireland, the fortification of Derry, um, the use of air bases for repair and so forth, or the use of the airboat bases in Enniskillen, uh, Belfast Dock, and so on and so forth. So I think the ports, certainly as the war progressed, become something of a red herring, but something which Grey can deploy against de Valera. Now, when we think about the Irish in America, our thinking tends to be very republic-centred. We think in terms automatically of the, of the Catholic Irish but the first emigrants, the first Irish emigrants to America, obviously, were Ulster Irish. So did this have any impact on Northern Ireland's relationship with this influx of American troops? Yeah, what, what we see is almost immediately as the Americans land, we see a kind of repurposing of traditional narratives on relations between Irish nationalists and the United States and unionists and the United States. So we quickly see the re-establishment or indeed the establishment of a kind of diasporic narrative where suddenly Ulster, as was, becomes America's oldest friend. Um, that we that unionist newspapers and particularly Presbyterian clergymen, uh, government ministers, are talking about the original Irish settlers, the people who left Ulster in the 17th and 18th centuries and settled in places like Pennsylvania. So what they're trying to do here is make a prior claim to American friendship. So long before the famine and the mass immigration, uh, which uh, resulted from the famine. Um, And what they're also doing is claiming a key role in the revolution. Now, obviously, there's a paradox here with um, people who are now unionists committed to the union with uh, Great Britain celebrating the first rebels really to (laughs) succeed in a revolt against the British. And there's a there's a lovely quote in the Belfast Telegraph on the 4th of July, 1942, which says, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, into the reasons of this conflict, we need not detain ourselves. So there's this this paradox of celebrating the Americans uh, and celebrating American independence without really going into details as to what it was about. But more interesting than that, in some respects, is that Ulster Ulstermen, Ulster Protestants, particularly Presbyterians, not only claim a key role in the revolution. For example, George Washington said that his finest soldiers were Pennsylvania Ulstermen, but also in the philosophy which led to the Declaration of Independence. They see this as a as a, a Presbyterian document, or certainly um, with Presbyterian influence, and that the most ardent revolutionaries were Presbyterians of Ulster stock. So there is an attempt to connect with this narrative and to use it to kind of put focus on Ulster's relationship and to kind of offset the the more general Irish Catholic relationship with the United States. Now, approximately 6,000 troops, as I say, arrived in the in the first deployment. By the summer of 1942, that number had jumped to around 40,000. Did the Northern Ireland government lay out the red carpet for them? Yes, absolutely. Stormont was delighted to have American troops. Um, as I mentioned, it put Northern Ireland at the centre of the war. It was big news. But what happens in terms of uh, looking after the troops is that the Americans send the Red Cross and they want to try and keep the entertainment of the Americans in-house. 
Now, the Stormont, uh, led by Commerce Minister Sir Basil Brooke, who becomes Prime Minister in 1943, they attempt to create what they call hospitality committees. Uh, and this really accelerates over the second half of 1942. And these hospitality committees are often things like setting up a hall, um, whether it's a church hall or an orange hall, a village hall, whatever it is, so that there are entertainments for the Americans, you know, dances, this sort of thing. But at least in the first deployment, the Americans are keen to keep it in-house. But the practicalities are that they have to cooperate with uh, with Stormont. Uh, with Americans going on leave and you know the problems that they cause, there needs to be cooperation between the Red Cross, the military and the government. Given that the Unionist establishment welcomed the US troops with open arms, does that mean that the Nationalist establishment didn't? At least initially. Uh, what happens is that de Valera uh, makes his protest and nationalist politicians in Northern Ireland echo it. So we have got a couple of Stormont MPs from Derry who fully support de Valera. One called Maxwell compares the Americans to the Germans occupying France or Norway and says that the government, the Irish government, should have been consulted. Um, he also talks about we're not able to throw out the Americans, otherwise we would, uh, and we're, go we're going to ignore them. So the stance of nationalist politicians is really to say nothing. And that's kind of what happens for the for most of the war. They say very little about the American presence. And I think this is because it's not going to play well in America. That criticism of the Americans is criticism of the American cause and also the American sacrifice. So nationalists on both sides of the border, generally speaking, stay quiet about it uh, with the view that once the war is over, then they can reconnect with Irish America and they can uh, launch an anti-partition campaign in America. And this is really what happens um, not long after the end of the war. How does the IRA respond? Uh, well, the IRA's response is a campaign which begins in the spring of 1942. So there have been IRA campaigns south of the border and in England, which had failed and there have been internments and executions south of the border. And the campaign which begins around about Easter 1942 is directly linked to the Americans. However, this doesn't really become clear until the summer. There are a few incidents where there are people arrested crossing the border with letters asking for information about the American forces. But during the summer, tensions are reasonably high in Northern Ireland for the impending execution of an IRA member for the murder of a policeman. And uh, during this kind of crisis, a manifesto is discovered in an arms dump, which talks about the Americans. Now, the manifesto is kind of bombastic. It's about, we'll fight the Americans if they join in on the side of the British, and so on and so forth. And it's more for, I think it's more for rhetorical purposes than any real threat. I can't find anything to suggest that on duty American soldiers were attacked, that there were attempts to steal arms or anything like that. But you do have attacks off duty on American soldiers under the cover of the blackout. Now, sometimes these were by Republicans, sometimes they were claimed by Republicans. But what happens is that the Unionist press and Stormont are happy to play this up, this idea that the IRA are the enemies of uh, Stormont 
and they're also the enemies of the Americans and that they're a threat to the war effort. Uh, and this causes a good deal of concern for the US consulate in Belfast and Gray in Dublin. Is there an implication that American troops would defend Northern Ireland from a German invasion from the south if that were to happen? Yes, uh, I think what we see with this is that there are a number of reasons for the deployment to Northern Ireland. Uh, so the Battle of the Atlantic is crucial. American troops can train in Northern Ireland and the British troops that are stationed there can go to North Africa. Now, in theory, American troops could have gone anywhere in the UK. But one of the advantages in sending them to Northern Ireland is a hypothetical invasion of the South. Now, this would be to repel a German invasion of the uh, of the south coast and the thinking was that american troops would be welcome whereas british troops even in response to german invasion might not there is at one point uh de valera in an informal communication with um, uk and possibly even stormont officials suggests using australian or canadian troops to garrison Northern Ireland in case of a, a German invasion. So the sense is that American troops would be made welcome and, and this would overcome a tricky diplomatic situation. And then how did ordinary people respond to the arrival of all these American troops? Did life change for the ordinary citizens? I mean, one thinks of the impact of GI's in the in England, in the in the south of England, for example, they were, uh, you know, they were uh, very very healthy and uh, quite wealthy, certainly by comparison with the locals. Yeah, the overpaid, oversexed, over here stereotype applies. In you North said Ireland. it, not me. <laughs> yeah, I had to I had to go in somewhere. Uh, yeah, it applies in Northern Ireland. Uh, now, obviously, things are complicated by sectarian divisions. And you have a, a, a rhetorical hostility towards the Americans from Catholic or nationalist uh, population. But the Ministry of Information did a survey in June 1942, so this, this is quite early on, which discovered that uh, nationalists welcomed, ordinary nationalists welcomed the Americans. Uh, and also, actually, that the, the welcome was as, was as hearty in nationalist areas as it was in uh, unionist areas. The Ministry of Information said that the Americans were just really difficult people to dislike. Um, it also discovered that hostility was highest where there were no Americans stationed. Um, there's an additional factor here is that many Americans were stationed west of the band, so they were stationed in areas which often had uh, majority Catholic populations. So there are problems which are going to come uh, with the Americans. The Americans couldn't hold their drink. They were chasing the women. They committed casual criminality. Uh, there were also problems about what would happen if an American killed a civilian. Would this have an impact if um, Americans killed a nationalist civilian as opposed to a unionist civilian? But the, the welcome seems to be broadly positive on both sides of the community. Let's go back to where this, to some extent, began for you, the experience of African-American soldiers in Northern Ireland. They were coming from a segregated society into essentially another segregated society. Were they treated any differently by the people? Did they suffer racism while they were in Northern Ireland? The experience of African-Americans is broadly positive. 
uh, soldiers write letters home about how welcome they are. They are one said the Irish treat us as if we are one of them. Um, they're popular with the girls. Uh, they appreciate being treated well by a white society, uh, which many of them haven't experienced before. And black soldiers also have a reputation for politeness. Uh, and they're much better behaved than white soldiers. And there doesn't seem to be any correlation between their oppression and Northern Ireland's own Jim Crow system. For From the perspective of um, Catholics and nationalists, they're part of this, quote, occupying force that has come in. So they don't come together in terms of their, their shared, if different, uh, oppression. Now, where racism's concerned, uh, there was there was clearly some. There is a, a letter at Prony from a black serviceman who talks about not being able to go out into Belfast because they get called uh, racist names. They're afraid to go out at night. And most of the problems they face come from white GIs. You know, there, there's, there's quite a bit of violence, usually instigated by white GIs against African-Americans. So that's, and if anything, that's the big problem that African-American GIs face uh, with not just Northern Ireland, but uh, throughout the UK. Now, by the summer of 1944, with the invasion of Europe, there was a huge clear out of these soldiers, obviously. Uh, what was the impact of their departure on Northern Ireland, politically and economically? Well, in terms of the war, uh, Northern Ireland reverted to being a backwater. Some US forces stayed behind, so there were uh, bomber repair bases, aircraft repair bases, which stayed, and obviously the naval installations remained. The impact, I think, is is very short term. It doesn't make Northern Ireland a more liberal society. It doesn't ease sectarian divisions in Northern Ireland. It makes the state perhaps a little less, little less insular in that Stormont starts to look beyond London and the empire and starts to look to perhaps try and create an informal bilateral relationship with the United States. Now, this this doesn't really happen uh, to any great extent. Um, the country is perhaps a little less conservative as a consequence of the war. But the American presence in the UK generally has been described by another historian as an interlude. So this sense that it's a temporary expedient to win the war. And once the war is won, we will go back to normal. Obviously, you can never go back to normal. And the, the changes that come about in Northern Ireland after the war, I think, are more to do with things such as the the beverage plan and the introduction of the NHS and uh, the Education Act. And these, these things, I think, are much more transformative uh, than the American presence. There's also an idea that the war brings Northern Ireland closer to the rest of the UK. So the experience of the Blitz, the experience of rationing, the experience of casualty figures and the experience of hosting the Americans draw Northern Ireland closer to the rest of the UK and increase the schism uh, between Northern Ireland and ERA. Uh, and this, I think, is felt across the border as well uh, in terms of the impact that the war has era is, uh, is, uh, asserts its independence through its neutrality um, during the war, which in increases the divisions between the two states. Before we finish, uh, somebody who's always intrigued me, what became of the unlovable, at least from an Irish perspective, David Gray? 
he has an afterlife. Uh, he manages to stick around until 1947. And Devil wanted him out in 1941, uh, about a year after he arrived. He stays in touch with some Stormont officials, um, plus the UK minister in Dublin. Actually, he also befriends uh, John Betjeman, who was a UK <laughs> official in Dublin. Well-known spy. Um, Yes, uh, who actually who would sometimes sign his letters to Gray um, as Sean O'Betjeman. He would sort of <laughs> do a kind of fake Gaelicisation of his name uh, and they stayed in touch. He comes back into the picture in the late 1950s with his memoir, this massive memoir that he was writing, which is essentially a diatribe against Irish independence, against Sinn Féin and particularly against De Valera. So you have this 300,000 word manuscript, which nobody wants to publish, but somehow Stormont get their hands on it. They're still in correspondence with Gray. Um, they're aware that he's having trouble uh, finding a publisher with this. So Stormont offers to take over the project on the quiet. Uh, Stormont official edits the uh, manuscript, gets it down to, oh, I can't remember the, the word count, maybe 70 or 80,000 words. But Gray refuses to publish in anything other than its complete form. <laughs> now, Stormont did have some issues with this. Uh, it was circulated in secret among Stormont ministers, including future Prime Minister Brian Faulkner. And one official uh, called A.J. Kelly said that, that Stormont should not go near this, that it was a diatribe, it was subject to satire, it just reflected uh, Gray's bitterness. But despite this, they secured a publisher uh, on the basis that Stormont would buy a thousand copies for a, a guinea each, which I think was about a pound each. And this is in the early 60s. But Gray refused. And the manuscript ended up at the University of Wyoming in its collections. And Gray died in the late 1960s. And this was never, this was not published until a few years ago. Uh, Paul Bew did a, an edited version of it, a small section of it. <laughs> a gentleman with no difficulties, whatever, with self esteem, uh, David Gray. Um, for anyone who wants to know more about Gray and the little known story of those uh, two years in which American troops were based in Northern Ireland in huge numbers, you'll find all of that and more in Northern Ireland, the United States, and the Second World War. The book is published by Bloomsbury and is available from their website, bloomsbury.com. The author is Dr. Simon Topping. Simon, thank you very much indeed for talking to us on The History Show. Thank you for having me.